0: Come on in, get comfy. So we are in part three of a series we're calling All Things New. And if you missed the first two parts, you can always go back and watch them, um, because we're going to pick up where we left off last week. You can go to URFellowship.com and that'll get you to them. Uh, Those will be there as long as you have electricity and there's the internet. So those will be there forever. So... Now here's something we all know. Um, Religion is a powerful thing, right? And religion is is so powerful, and and because religion is so powerful, religion can also be very dangerous, right? One of the reasons it's so dangerous is because it's often fueled by superstition and fear. The thing that makes religion so powerful is that it's anchored in our conscience, And as we said last week, our consciences actually determine religious realities, whether they reflect actual reality or not. And for those of us who are Christians, or those of us who grew up in the United States, whether we're kind of aware of it or not, our consciences have been shaped by a version of Christianity. right? A combination of both what Jesus actually taught and what the the temple model has taught us as well. And this is all of us. Our consciences have been, have been kind of fine-tuned to where we feel the way we do toward God, the way we feel the way we do toward sin, the, we feel the way we do towards one another. And our conscience ultimately controls our behavior. And so what we're trying to do in this series is kind of separate out the movement that Jesus began and what we're referring to as the temple model. And when I say temple model, I mean a template for religion that goes way back. Further than the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the temple model looks like this. There's always sacred places, there's always sacred texts, inscriptions, documents, religious texts, sacred men, along with a group of people that are dependent upon the words and the teachings of the sacred men to understand where they stand with God. These sacred men kind of stand at the gates of heaven and hell and determine who goes where. But the great news is when Jesus showed up, he launched something completely new. It wasn't like Temple 2.0. It wasn't something that was sort of a version of something else. It was brand new. And whereas the temple model was always kind of geographically specific, every nation had their own version of a temple, every nation had their own version of a religion, Jesus said, I've come to launch something that's for all people, for all nations, for all time. And he established a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and man. He gave a new command. He said, every temple system has lots of flaws. I want to give you a new command just one love and this one command is to be the filter through which you live your life this one command is going to serve for you as an ethic through which you make all your decisions when you aren't sure what to do you ask what does love require of me this is a much simpler ethic but a much higher standard because now it's not just you can't just follow the rules Now, when you aren't sure what to do, you have to stop and pause and ask the question, what does love require of me? Because it requires something. And then Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to help us grow in this new ethic of love. And he launched a new movement. He said, I'm going to establish a new ecclesia, a new gathering, a new congregation. And unfortunately, instead of those words simply being translated, the gathering, the assembly, or the congregation, a German word was stuck into our English text, the German word church, that meant house of the Lord. A place, a specific place. But Jesus didn't come to establish a place. To the contrary, Jesus came to establish a brand new movement that was for all people, all ethnic groups, all nations, all generations, forever and ever. A movement where love would replace law-keeping, where self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice. This was unheard of. The Apostle Paul came along after Jesus, and the Apostle Paul was the product of the temple model. The Apostle Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was committed to stamping out the church. He was a type A personality. He took things to the extreme. And on the road to Damascus, he was going to go to arrest some more Christians. He met the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the Apostle Paul became a convert to Christianity, a spokesperson for Christianity. And he, more than anybody else, understood this, that you cannot mix the old with the new. A little bit of temple model thinking mixed with this new thing, this new ecclesia, this new Jesus movement would have the potential to pollute all of it. And in Paul's letter to the, to the Galatians, he wrote a verse that last week we camped out on. This, this, it's just incredible in terms of the implications. Here's what he said. And he said, he said the only thing that counts, this is the, like this is a Hebrew scholar, this is someone who had memorized the Torah. Galatians 5, six. the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And he didn't stop there. The Apostle Paul also had the audacity to write in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples? What are you talking about, Paul? No, a temple is a place I go. Paul said that was the old way of thinking. that That was old. This is new. You are more sacred than any building you ever set foot in. You are a portable temple. He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? To which the Jews would say, no. Wait a minute. No, the Spirit of God dwells in the Holy of Holies. Paul would say that was the old way. The new covenant has come. You are as holy as the Holy of Holies. You are a portable temple, and you are indwelt by the very same Spirit of God that indwelt the temple in Jerusalem. And the Christian to your left and the Christian to your right, the man in front of you, the woman behind you, the child beside you, they too are sacred in the eyes of God. This was mind blowing. And what's so fascinating is that the church got off to a great start, and it just went, just went really well. And then one of the things that I like to do, because I'm a bit of a geek, if you haven't realized that very obvious fact, I like to read the ancient literature of what pagans said about Christians. So that might lose me some cool points, but I'm already married, so... Uh. She likes me, so who am I trying to impress? But anyway, the, the pagans watched the Christians. They couldn't understand the Christians. Because the Christians would go out into the streets and take, take the children that had been abandoned. Because in Roman culture, if a child wasn't healthy, sometimes if it was a girl, they would they'd just be left for dead. Children were abandoned all the time. And the Christians would bring the children in. The Christians, the, the Christians would not only take care of their own poor, they would take care of the poor Gentiles and pagans as well. And the kind of the pagan Roman Greek thinking couldn't imagine that these people would actually love one another. They would actually care for one another. They would forgive one another. But the thing that really got the world's attention is that the Christians were not afraid of death because they served a resurrected Savior. And people were drawn to this Christian community and began to gain traction. They had no Bible. The Gentile Christians didn't even have the Old Testament. All they had were stories of Jesus. And then, twenty-five years or so later, after the resurrection, Jesus, the the the, uh, sorry, uh, the Apostle Paul's letters began to circulate to the churches. Slowly, there's no literature, there's no canon, there's just this faith that was fueled by love for one another, and the church gained traction. And then something amazing happened. If you know your history, in seventy A.D., the Jewish Temple was destroyed, and ancient Judaism came to an end at that point. And it was almost as if God had physically in the world punctuated the fact that the temple model is no more. Its purposes have been served, that the temple model pointed toward the Messiah, Messiah, pointed toward Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the entire law can be summed up into rules. Love God and love your neighbor." And people who had nothing in common found that in Christ, they had everything in common. And then something else happened. On October 28th, in the year 312, Emperor Constantine was on his way to do battle with his co-emperor, Maxentius, to find out who would be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. And as history tells us, on his way, in the middle of the day, he had this vision of a cross in the sky behind the sun. Some say he heard a voice, some say he simply saw an inscription, but either he heard or he read this, in this sign, conquer. And he stopped, and he painted crosses on some of his his shields of some of his soldiers, and he went to battle, and he was victorious. And the Christians hailed him as a conqueror, and suddenly his faith expanded, and he began to consider this one true God of the Christians. And immediately, the Christians began to gain status in the kingdom. In this victory celebration, kind of the cross was used and became a symbol, not of just kind of crucifixion in general. The cross became a symbol of the crucifixion of Jesus. And what was birthed, even though the, the phrase wouldn't be used until later, was what we now know as the Holy Roman Empire. The problem was that it was far more Roman, far more empire than it was holy. A year later, Constantine legalized Christianity. When he did so, he poured so much money into the church that he elevated the status of bishops and priests. He began to build churches anywhere he heard that a martyr had died. He became a collector of relics. Um, Everything he did was about elevating Christianity. He built churches. He banned crucifixion. He gave rights to children. He actually donated money to families that would take in orphans and children. And seemingly, and almost overnight, Christianity went from a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. But the problem was, and this was no one's intent, but what happened was Christianity became inseparable from empire. And the church leaders created their own version of the temple model with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in. Now there would be new sacred places, there would be a whole new group of sacred people that began to intentionally collect all the Christian texts, bind them together, literally chain them to altars. And now they would determine what was taught and what wasn't taught and how the text could be interpreted. This led to what was known as the Arian Controversy. This is a theological controversy, you may not have heard of this. And the only reason I'm going to tell you about it is because of where it leads, but we'll get to that in a minute. But the erring controversy was over this word begotten. It's a, it's, it was over the question I'm sure many of you wrestle with just about every day. Did Jesus become God after he was born, or was he born God? It's a good icebreaker question at the next party you attend. But this was a really big deal in the 4th century. A church leader from Alexandria named Arius believed that Jesus' divinity was given to him as an adult, as some sort of reward for his faithfulness to God. Most of the church leaders, especially this guy, Athanasius, who led the charge against Arius, believed that, no, Jesus was born divine. So Constantine didn't want there to be a division in his new holy empire, and so he called a meeting. He hosted the meeting, he paid for it himself. So there was this debate... And as a result, you've heard of the Nicene Creed that came out of a result of that, right? Athanasius, who argued persuasively that Jesus was born divine, won the debate. But after the debate, people didn't go away as friends. And immediately, this was a political issue. This was a financial issue. This was a big deal. And so Emperor Constantine, who is no theologian, put out this edict. And I just want to read this part to you, because this explains in some way even what we experience today. Here's what he wrote. He said, this is the end of his edict. I hereby make it public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. And now, theological division was a heresy that was punishable by death. And all at once, Believing the wrong thing was a crime, and what you believed trumped how you behaved. Christianity almost immediately became creedal. You're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, right? The Apostles' Creed is this amazing piece of theology. It states so many things that are super important to Christendom. The problem with the creed, along with other creeds, is there's no mention of love. In fact, there's no mention of behavior at all you could subscribe to that creed and basically do anything you wanted. And there was a reason the creeds were that way. Because the creeds were generally signed off on by the emperor. And the emperors had bad behaviors. So the church leaders who were being funded by the emperors had to be very careful about what they put in the Christian creeds. And so during this period in history, it was all about what you did or didn't believe. And now you had Christians arresting Christians for believing the wrong thing. And suddenly you had the Christian version of the temple model. This new group of sacred men now became the gatekeepers of heaven and hell through withholding communion, through withholding baptism, through threat of excommunication. The temple model was back. It was just the Christian version. Sacred places, sacred men who controlled the sacred text because no one had access to the Bible. It could be interpreted the way they thought it should be interpreted. And this new movement that was fueled by love for one another almost came to a screeching halt, except for the monastic movement and a remnant of people who understood what the Jesus movement was really all about. All right. The next big date in our story, we're kind of going through history is 1517, which marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. You know of Martin Luther, right? But Martin Luther and others, they weren't trying to abandon the church. They just wanted to reform the church. Thus the, re, thus the word reformation. But those inside the church felt that they were protesting. Thus the word Protestant. And so Martin Luther condemned the selling of indulgences. Martin Luther, who was a Greek scholar, understood that almost none of what the church stood for at that time could be found anywhere in the Gospels. Certainly not, Certainly the idea that a, a pope or an archbishop or a, or a bishop can control who goes into purgatory... And how long they stay there, none of that can be found in the Gospels. And so they began to try to reform the church. Consequently, as you probably know, Martin Luther was excommunicated. But he didn't care. Because he didn't believe the Pope had the power to excommunicate anybody. And within the context of the Reformation, there were several solas that came to light. The the most popular one is probably sola fide. Which simply means, as many of you know, by faith alone. And this became the hallmark of Protestantism, that we believe that salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. And so Martin Luther and others began to teach this. The printing press had been created, the Bible began to be translated into English, for which William Tyndale lost his life for making the text available to people in his nation. The same with Martin Luther, as he began to translate the Bible into German, he was He was hunted down like a criminal for making the Bible available to those in his part of the world. The other sola that the Reformation gave us was sola scriptura, because the Reformers believed, like many of us believe, that the Scripture, not the church, was the ultimate authority for mankind. This is why they were so adamant about making copies of Scripture and getting them into the hands of everybody, of people. Of course, this was a threat to the sacred men, Because if everybody had the scripture, and no one took the church and the traditions of the church seriously, they would lose their power. But without meaning to, and without understanding where this would go, in the hands of the reformers and the Protestant church leaders, the scriptures became the very same thing it was before. It became a weapon. The reformers were armed with the scripture, and they did exactly what the church had done before. And consequently, the reformation splintered into Three, six, a dozen, dozens. Now there's like 9,000 Protestant denominations all over the world. And do you know what divided them? Because some loved more than others? No. Is their interpretation of the text. Because now you have more sacred places and more sacred men with sacred texts telling everyone how to live their lives. And specifically what would grant them entrance into heaven and what would keep them out of hell. And the tragedy of all this, even though this, even though probably if we had lived in these times, no doubt, we would, we, had been, we would have been caught up in the same ways of thinking, in the same conflict. At the end of the day, the tragedy was love lost. Love lost. And we simply ended up with a bunch of different versions of the temple model with Jesus sprinkled in. Now, this next part of the sermon, I'm totally making up because I don't know if it happened. But... I imagine that at some point in all this chaos, and we just kind of went really fast through hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? I can imagine at some point Jesus and the Apostle Paul stood at the railing of heaven and looked out and went, how'd this happen? And Jesus turned to the Apostle Paul and was like, I don't know how I could have been any more clear. I got them all together right at the end. I washed their stinking feet. I told him, this is an example. This is what you're to do for one another. And I looked him right in the eye, and I said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. How'd it come to this? The Apostle Paul said, no offense, Jesus, but I actually wrote mine down. Uh, I sent it out. I had copies made. You know, when I told him, I told him the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And Peter walks up and says, I wrote it down too. I said this, I said, have sincere faith, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. So how could something so clear become so complicated? How could this, the, the new movement of Jesus with a new command and a new ethic of love that was to be the filter for all of our decisions and behavior, how could something so pure, so grassroots, so others, one another oriented become so temple model? And the reason is because there's a little temple model in all of us, and we have been shaped by it. What you fear, what you see as sin, what you think God condemns, has been taught to us in such a way that we have been shaped by it. And consequently, we continue to hold on to things that hold us back and hold the church back. And maybe you say, well, Chris, I don't old buddy, I don't know about that. Maybe that's some people, but that isn't me. okay. Let me ask you some make you mad questions to see. How about that? You do an honest assessment. Here's some questions for you. Have you ever wondered how close to sin you can actually get without sinning? That's how temple model people think. Because you treat God like he's stupid. It's like God, I don't, I want, I want to see, you know, I want to know exactly what sin is. Because see, I'm, I'm not trying to get close to you. I'm trying to get close to sin. But God, I, I, want, I don't want to take you off. That isn't love. That's temple model thinking. Let me ask this one. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have ever felt more guilty about missing church than you, did, than you have about the way you treated someone at work? That in your thinking, attendance takes precedent over how you treat other people. That's temple model thinking. Here's another one. Do you believe there's some sort of ritual that makes you right with God and removes your responsibility to make restitution to the person that you've hurt or sinned against? Like, Do you believe there's some kind of like magic prayer? There's some kind of penance? There's some kind of, if I do that consistently and if I serve and maybe become a scout leader or whatever it is, do you think there's some kind of thing that somehow will make you right with God and remove your responsibility to make things right with someone else? It's temple thinking. How about this one? Do other people sense feelings of compassion in you or superiority? Sort of like, well, of course they do that. They're Democrats. Of course. Well, they're conservative. Well, they're Presbyterian. Well, they're Catholic. Well, they're Baptist. Well, they're pagans. Whatever it is. Is there ever a moment in time where somehow other, other people's failings make you feel morally superior instead of breaking your heart? It's like Jesus said, the Pharisee who stood in the temple and said, God, I'm so glad I'm not like those other people. You can name the group. They're disgusting. They're disgusting to you, and they're disgusting to me, and I hope I don't get their impurities. God, because look at me, I'm I'm pure and moral, a pure and moral person. Is there any of that in you? As I know there's in me. It's temple model pollution. It's a little bit of the wrong thing that has the potential to pollute the entire thing. Last one. Do your beliefs and your theology ever get in the way of your love? Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5 reminds us what the goal of theology is. He says, now the goal of our instruction is love. that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love is the conclusion of good theology. If your theology doesn't lead to love, that's temple. This is in all of us. I think what fuels the temple model thinking in many of us is simply our failure to truly embrace Jesus' sacrifice for us. Like you may have prayed a prayer when you were a child, but the idea that Jesus died for you, when that gets to your heart, here's what happens. You will begin to recognize that Jesus is for you. And once you understand that Jesus is unequivocally for you, that there's no sin that puts you outside God's grace, that grace has no measure, and grace has no limits, once you settle into that, and that gets in your heart, that becomes the context for your whole life, and the love God has for you and the people becomes the context through which you understand the Scriptures. It becomes the context through which we interpret the Old and the New Testament. It becomes the context for our behavior it goes right back to what Jesus said when he said, hey, it's, it's real simple. You love God and you love others. That's it. When you aren't sure what to do, you pause and you ask, what does love require of you? Because Jesus said, the Apostle Paul said, that the entire law hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. What did that characterize the whole church? What if God's love for us and for those around us began to really shape our behavior? When that happens, as that happens, then and not until then, they will know that we're Christians by our love. Our mission and goal and the reason we're doing this series is to strip away the temple thinking from all of us so that we can once again engage in this this new thing, a totally different way of approaching life within the context of a brand new covenant that said said your sin is paid for. Now live a life that reflects the forgiveness of God as you mirror that forgiveness to the it. Mirror that in forgiveness of the people around you. Amen. Let's pray. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for for preserving these life-giving words. To say at the end of the day, it's as simple as loving you and loving, loving the invisible God through loving the visible people around us, Lord. Father, perhaps we could be the generation that at least moves the ball down the field. And perhaps we could be the generation that gets this writer. That our kids and our grandkids would would see in us a Christianity that truly incorporates and embraces this new thing. And that little by little, each of us individually and as a group would leave behind those things that should have been left behind a long time ago. So give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. Give us the courage to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say, it. Amen. Amen.